speak to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A moment of personal sharing. It may be my attention deficit, um, <laughs> but one of my favorite parts of going to the movies is coming attractions. It's about all I can probably focus on. It creates some marital disputes, but that's another sermon. Um, in that spirit, let me give you a sneak preview of next Sunday, which is our observance of All Saints Day. Uh, no spoiler alert, but that celebration will include baptisms. And in the baptismal liturgy, we will renew our baptismal covenant promises, reflecting what it means to be a Christian person. Now, I want to get you ready for the third promise and invite you to think about it this week. Third promise goes like this. Will we proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? In other words, we are each going to be asked to take on the role of preachers. Now, that may make you want to run from the building. Uh, for some people, the greatest fear in life is public speaking. You may not think you have much to preach about. I doubt that, but you may think that. You may think preachers are a bunch of bloviators. I've heard that before. But the call comes to every one of us, right? And as I think about the job of a preacher, I think of what Karl Barth said. The preacher is called to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other to see how those two documents, how they narrate the human condition and to see how they intersect. What does the Bible say about what we see in the news? What does the news say about our appropriation of the scriptures? That is always, at all times, challenging work. And I am finding it in my own spiritual journey extraordinarily hard this week given all that we see in the news. Maybe you do too. So what could we possibly say or proclaim about the horrors of the attacks of October 7th in Israel? Or what could we possibly say or proclaim about the plight of those trapped in Gaza? What could we possibly say about thousands of children killed what could we say about the shooting in Maine? What could we say about migrants on our borders trekking hundreds of miles only to be used by politicians as pawns? What other unspeakable thing that we don't even know about yet will we learn this afternoon or tomorrow on the news? I have a friend who's a composer and after the Charleston shooting, he wrote a piece uh, in his own pain and sorrow and the piece was called there are no words and he took up the, the message that music actually can heal when words can't uh, there are no words no way to make sense in fact words like thoughts and prayers can feel shallow and empty and different and even dangerous so that's on the one hand we have the newspaper on the other hand in the other hand the bible and specifically that reading that you heard today does it have anything to say to us this morning. In today's gospel, Jesus is once again, they just keep coming at him. Jesus is once again put to the test by religious leaders, probably the clergy of the day, right? Let's be clear, those leaders are not interested in joining the Jesus movement. 
They simply wish to trap Jesus, to get him to commit to a right way of thinking or to admit he's outside the right way of thinking. Jesus is asked a test to name the great commandment. He says one rule is most important. What about it? If he says one rule is most important, what about the others? What is right? What is not right? And he's been asked this kind of thing before. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it right to heal somebody on the Sabbath? It's all about what is right. A good question, but one that can make us think about who's not right, who is outside, and maybe even who we need to get rid of. Now, another question occurs to me, not is it right? Um, it seems to me that we need to focus not on being right, but on that word you heard in the psalm, on being righteous. And let me unpack that for a little bit, because in the writings of the New Testament, particularly in what Paul has to share with us, he speaks of what it is to be righteous. And it's, all, it's not about moral correctness. It's not about getting the right answer. It's not about knowing facts. It's about relationship. It's about being brought into right relationship with God and neighbor. So when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he digs back into his own tradition, including the reading we heard from Leviticus, to say that the greatest commandment is relational. It is to live more fully into the love of God and love of neighbor. The two impossible to separate. It's not one thing, it's two, it's simple, but not easy. And as Michael Curry reminds us, if it's not about love, it is not about God. Now, there's a version of this story that comes up in Luke's gospel. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, the person questioning Jesus in Luke's gospel asks for the greatest commandment. He gets the answer about love of God and neighbor. But like a dogged journalist, the guy who's asking the questions, I have a follow-up. Who is my neighbor? How far, Jesus, do I have to carry this? Or as I saw on a bumper sticker, how much sinning can I do and still go to heaven? Jesus responds by telling the story, as he often did, the story of the Good Samaritan, offering a scandalously outrageous, expansive vision of what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be in relationship with those around us. So with that bit of the Bible under our, belts, let's, uh, under our belts, let's go back to the newspaper. Is there any hope for what is unfolding in Israel and Gaza? Is there any hope for the victims of the epidemic of gun violence? Is there anything we can do? The problems, I don't know about you, for to me they seem so great that they can lead to hopelessness. And in times like these, people of faith are called to look for signs of hope and pray that they become more than signs. So here's what I've seen in the last week. I saw a sign of hope of the righteous actions of Yosheved Lifshutz, the 85-year-old Israeli peace activist who upon release from captivity by Hamas, shook hands with her captors as she boarded the ambulance and wished them shalom. I see a sign of hope in the righteous witness of Leroy Walker, father of Joseph Walker, a 25-year-old slain this week trying to stop a gunman. Through his tears, 
the elderly Mr. Walker said that he simply, it's 24 hours after the event, 24 hours, he said he cannot hate his son's killer. If he hates the killer, the violence will continue. He spoke, he had this thick main accent and he was weeping in this interview, right? But he said, and again, I trust in the Lord. I thought at first he said, I trust in the law. But the more I listened, he said, no, in this moment, I trust in the Lord. He said, you can't run around this world hating people. If you hate people, you'll end up killing people. That's much like the sign of hope I saw from family members of those killed at the Mother Emanuel Church Bible study in Charleston, who hours after the attack forgave the young killer. And these signs, which I saw this week, need not just be individual quixotic acts. They can be far-reaching. So let me tell you about Nelson Mandela, who upon release from prison 27 years on that island, immediately forgave his captors and said that if he did not forgive them, they still had him in prison. And so, along with Desmond Tutu, they gave their nation a future because they asserted that there was no future without forgiveness. Martin Luther King insisted on a nonviolent response to the hatred of his opponents, many of whom actually claimed to follow Jesus. Figure that one out. That ministry of his absolutely changed the course of our nation. And Dr. King learned a lot of that from Mahatma Gandhi, who led a movement of soul force to free his country from oppression. Gandhi, though he experienced the worst kinds of discrimination for good Christian folks, he once said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Gandhi took his cue from the Sermon on the Mount, from Jesus. Righteous signs of hope spring from Jesus who forgave his executioners from the cross and showed us and shows us the power of love. He described it as a narrow way. And I think we can relate to that. It's a way that may make no sense. It may seem really hard. It may seem overwhelming and our efforts futile, but as I look at escalating violence, calls for revenge, unfolding in a cycle that will never end up being life-giving, I believe now more than ever, we need to hang on to those signs to hope and pray for another way, recognizing that we're all in this together, that we all have a part to play. So here's a segue. Let me tell you about Mayor LaGuardia. In the 1930s, he would sometimes go to the courthouse late at night and uh, claim the seat of the judge effort to stay in touch with the citizens of the city. So one night an elderly woman was brought before him. She was charged with stealing food for her family, recently abandoned by her son-in-law. The storekeeper said he had to press charges lest he be overrun in that time of depression. The judge, AKA the mayor, agreed. And he sentenced the woman to either $10 or 10 days in prison. The woman didn't have 10 bucks. So the mayor paid her fine. But um, the mayor wasn't done. He then looked at everybody in the courtroom and he said, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where an old woman has to steal food 
to feed her family. And then he had a collection taken and he handed the woman $47.50, which was a considerable sum in those days. All of which is to indicate that the brokenness of the world, which we see so clearly, which we know so well, is something in which we all participate. Regardless of how hard we try to build bubbles or try to build walls, it is something for which we are all responsible, something we are each called to address, systems in which we all participate. So where, where might we see signs of hope? Might this church be a righteous sign of hope? How might we, how might we be those signs of hope? I can imagine you saying, because I say it to myself, is there anything we can really do in the face of the news? Is there any really good news to proclaim? And we might begin with serious audit, asking ourselves, are there ways I contribute to the brokenness of the world, even just by my indifference? In our liturgies, we confess regularly that we have not loved God or neighbor as we ought. Lord, have mercy on us to the extent that is true. But as our hearts are moved, sending thoughts and prayers are a wonderful start, a good thing, and by no means enough. And they are often diversion. Advocacy will promise to do that in the baptismal service to strive for justice and peace. That's a way to celebrate, not only by word, but by example, the power of love, the good news of God in Christ in a world that claims not the power of love, but the love of power. You and I, all of us together, this church are called to the way of love, which means practicing that way. And I think it means honoring relationship over rules and religion, righteousness over rights or what we have decided is right. It is work done in our families, in our workplace, in this church. It means being citizens committed to justice and peace. It means conversations over the dinner table with family members, we've all got them, who may totally disagree with us. It means in the workplace, in the voting booth, in all the places we've been graced with influence. And at St. James, there is a place with many influencers. So preachers, will you proclaim the good news in word and example? Next week in the liturgy, the people will respond, we will, with God's help. But spoiler alert, you don't have to wait till next week. God is with us in this moment to equip us to be righteous signs of hope. May it be done so by God's grace and through God's love. Amen. Amen.